Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and my first question on this show, which I will not ask the panel uh, to answer, is who the heck turned off the sun? I don't know about the entire state because I haven't looked at temperatures around the state, but it is under 40 degrees here in metro Atlanta, and it feels like winter is upon us, although I know the temperatures are supposed to warm up in the weeks ahead. Um, Let me start by uh, pointing out that we are still in a pledge period here at GPB Radio, as many of you who listen to the station throughout the day know. But once again today, um, because uh, the people at GPB believe that right now, with the election already underway, our ability to bring you information, analysis about what's happening in the races is so important, and we believe it's why you turned to Political Rewind in the first place, that they're going to forego doing a um, pledge show today, which um, usually shortens our time to talk. Um, We're going to do the complete show without a pledge break. So all I'm suggesting to you because of that is if you are not a donor to GPB Radio, if you have never uh, contributed to the work we do here at Political Rewind and the other shows we bring to you, Um, I would ask that you think about whether this is the time uh, to donate. You can do that by going to gpb.org. There's a button up in the right-hand corner of the homepage. It says Donate. Um, You can also call us at 800-222-4788 and make a contribution. Uh, For those of you who have been donors and who send me notes telling me that you become a sustained donor because of your Appreciate your appreciation for Political Rewind. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to you. Okay, that's all we're going to say about Pledge today. Let's get right into the show. It's Tuesday, which means I'm joined, as usual, by Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Hi, Bill. You say it's in the 40s in Atlanta. It's a brisk 34 in the Virginia mountains at my parents' house, so I'm trying to stay warm and cozy this morning. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm very glad uh, you're with us. Uh, Tamara Donald Lowry, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers, is with us as well. Uh, Donna, we're always glad to have you here, but uh, you were the moderator of last night's gubernatorial debate at the Atlanta Press Club stage. It was on GPB uh, digital and TV platforms and radio as well. How are you holding up, Donna? Did you need a little more sleep this morning after the way things got a little rowdy every now and then last night? I think I did. I did not get that sleep, but I did want it. I also just wanted to relax a little bit. But, you know, after something like that, you're kind of hyped up for a bit. So it was was tough to sleep. But I'm so glad that uh, it, it came across as well as it did. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk nerves when you go into one of those um, situations as a moderator. You, you, you were you were you were just excellent. I'm happy to say, and Thank we're going to talk you. about the gubernatorial debate in a few minutes. Emma Hurt, Axios Atlanta reporter, is with us, and Emma Hurt, you've been part of the uh, press club debates as well. You were uh, uh, in the uh, on the panel of the uh, 
Senate debate Sunday night, the uh, a debate in which uh, Herschel Walker chose not to appear. Uh, but we got some really interesting um, uh, information, I think, from Raphael Warnock and from Chase Oliver, the libertarian candidate in that debate. Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable. We asked questions for about 40 minutes. So, I mean, that was a really substantive um, amount of time for us to actually ask ask real questions, <laughs> which sometimes doesn't happen in debates, as we all know well, <laughs> not because we don't try. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> professor Andre Gillespie is back with us. You all know her. She's professor of political science at Emory University and, of course, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the study of race and difference at Emory University. Hi, Andra. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. I really appreciate uh, your joining us um, because getting the view of a political scientist on how these uh, debates are unfolding is really going to be uh, valuable. But I'd like to start by talking a bit about the first day of early voting yesterday. Um, my wife and I decided to get out and vote right away. We were at our polling place at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. There was about a 30-minute line at that point. It moved pretty well. The whole process took us maybe 40 to 45 minutes. And uh, at our polling place, they told us they really were having great turnout and expected by the end of the day to have well over 1,000 voters, which they all thought was going to be terrific. And tomorrow, we actually learned that there were so many people turning out on the first day of voting that we had a record for in-person early voting in an off-year election. That's pretty remarkable, Tamar. Yeah, something like 125,000 Georgians went out, which dwarfed any record that we had, especially for, well, in, in any midterm year, for sure. Compared to 2018, we had about 70,000, so nearly kind of doubled what what we came had four years ago. Of course, this is not close yet to uh, the record set in, in 2020, obviously a presidential year, election year, but it shows, at least for now, the enthusiasm among Georgia voters, even though there's not a presidential race at the top of this ticket. So, Andra, let me turn to you as our political scientist on the panel. Um, according to George Anderson, I mean, Ryan Anderson, who uh, runs the Georgia Votes website, which uh, updates us every day on early voting and breaks it down by demographic. Uh, he said, Ryan says that 39% of the voters on the first day were black voters. Um, and he points out, of course, that black voters represent 29% of the population. So that's, that's a, an interesting number. 49% were white. And he says that 52% uh, were women. So when you think about numbers like that, Andra, I know that we're only speculating at this point, but what does that tell you early on? So um, th that's actually really heartening for black voter turnout. Um, you know, I, of course, those are numbers that we know so far of people who applied for absentee ballots. You still got to turn it in. You haven't voted yet if you don't turn it in and it's not received and counted. So we're going to I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to what the black turnout number as a proportion of the overall electorate looks like. Um, if it starts to, you know, dip below 29 percent, particularly if it's like 27 percent, that's not a good sign for Democratic prospects in the election. But if blacks comprise 29 percent or even more of the electorate, so that would suggest that they're turning out at higher rates than other groups are within the population, that bodes well for Democrats 
because presuming that they make up or that 90% of them more or less are going to vote Democratic, then you can kind of figure there that that's going to comprise half and more than half the votes that Democratic voters are going to get in, in, in the state. So there, uh, so the goal for Democrats in particular is to try to put a multiracial coalition together with blacks at the base, but that also includes white, Latino, and Asian American voters as well. So um, I'm going to be paying attention to those numbers closely, but at least as far as like the civic aspect of turnout amongst uh, minoritized groups, that's a really good sign, really and really heartening sign for black voters. Uh, and Emma, one of the reasons that we are, are especially interested in that in this election cycle, I mean, obviously, uh, minority votes in any election cycle are, are are crucial in terms, especially of Democratic hopes. But of course, the polling that that has been done of the Georgia governor's race has suggested that Stacey Abrams really needs to increase uh, the percentage of black voters who prefer her over Brian Kemp. So that's one reason we're watching those numbers pretty closely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's been her argument this whole time, as we've all pointed to public polling averages that show her behind. And she has and her team have continued to to push back that they don't think those polls take into account what an electorate will look like in this midterm election, because they say it's not a normal year and um, you can't predict. And and she says it's the same thing that happened in 2018, that that. Um, you know, the, the electorate that was polled didn't actually reflect who showed up. And so um, she came much closer than than some had thought. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, I'm also watching this um, by gender breakdown as well. 56% female. We know that, you know, the electorate tends, it tends to be more female, but still that's a, I mean, that's 56%. It's notable because as we know, this is a battleground state. Any little bit counts, no matter where you can find it. Um, Donna, just to finish this off and to move on, just to give some numbers here, um, uh, the AJC reports that um, 123,834 people showed up in person yesterday on the first day of voting compared to the last midterm election's first day of voting when that number was 71,000 roughly. So approaching almost twice as many. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big thing is that there is just there some people just what from what I heard just wanted to get that vote done, get it over with because we've been we've been hearing so much. This has been in play for a long time and they they wanted to vote. My daughter went. She said it was busy at her place. I had a friend who said the line was around the block at a particular location in Buckhead. So I think that people really want to get out out early and and vote. And I think a lot of people, as somebody said to me, wouldn't it be nice if you could vote and then you would never have to see the ads again um, before <laughs> after you vote because you've already voted and no more ads. And, you know, but now, you know, certainly we have a few weeks to go now until Election Day. But I think the main thing is that there is a lot more energy. And, and it seems that we're seeing that from 2018, more energy, 2020. Each election cycle now, we're seeing a lot more energy in Georgia and certainly um, with Democrats after what happened in 2020. Um, all right. Uh, early voting continues weekdays. It's, it's mandated in every county, uh, Monday through Friday. And then there are two Saturday 
early voting days that are required in every uh, county across the state. You you have to check to make sure where uh, your early voting polling place is because it isn't necessarily, it's not likely really, to be the place where you usually cast your ballot on election day. So before you decide to go out and early vote, um, Google, you know, early voting in your particular county, and it'll give you the locations uh, where you'll uh, go. All right. Um, we had a fascinating uh, gubernatorial debate last night sponsored by the Atlanta Press Club. Um, and I want to, rather than my direct you uh, to certain aspects of the debate, I'd really love to first go around and ask each of you for your general impressions of what you saw last night in the debate between uh, Abrams, Kemp, and the libertarian Shane Hazel. Tamar, start us off. Well, I tuned in in an interesting way. I Like I said, I'm at my parents' house in Virginia. I tried to stream it on gpb.com, but the feed actually was cut out after a couple minutes. So I ended up listening to it uh, radio style. And first of all, um, <laughs> first of all, Donna, you did such a great job kind of as, as traffic cops because there were so many, so much cutting in, especially from the libertarian candidate, Shane Hazel. And that almost became really distracting as somebody who's trying to listen to the substance of the debate, where he really just kind of wanted to barrel through and have his voice heard. And so hats off to you, Donna, for, for keeping everyone in line. Um, as expected, lots of talk on the economy, on crime, of course, two issues at the top of voters' minds. I was shocked how little attention was paid to abortion, which, of course, is an issue that Democrats and particularly Stacey Abrams are really hoping can help drive turnout, especially among Democratic women. And I'm surprised Stacey Abrams didn't lean more into that. Otherwise, I think it was a pretty substantive debate. And I think for supporters of Stacey Abrams, supporters of Brian Kemp, I think they got what they needed out of each candidate. I didn't see any giant stumbles that might kind of pull supporters away from a candidate. The question is whether they were able to reach anyone new. Emma? I was also struck by the absence of abortion, um, given how this campaign has gone the last couple months. But what we did hear a lot about was gun policy, which is something we haven't heard that much about in the campaign. But as we know, it is one of the um, policy, it's one of the policy areas where these two candidates, I mean, they differ in a lot. But these are, this is one of the policy areas like abortion that Abrams and Democrats have really tried to make a case to voters on because, as we know, a majority of voters don't support some of the policies that Governor Kemp has passed and championed on these two issues. And so, um, to me, it was, it was notable to see that, especially, you know, the day, and, and this is, it happened in part thanks to one of Greg's questions about uh, Kemp's public safety plan, which he released yesterday, which didn't mention gun control. It, it talks about um, strengthening penalties um, for gun-related crimes and, and uh, sorry, gang-related crimes and um, gang recruitment and much more. But so that that was to me very interesting because it's not something we've actually heard them engage on. Um, I, Abrams has tried to talk about it, but Kemp has has been able to deflect that, and they really got into it in this debate. Um, we're going to come back to that in just a minute because we're going to listen to some sound from the debate. But before we do, uh, Andra. 
Um, so first, I, I want to applaud Donna for doing an excellent job moderating the debate, and and, and Emma too uh, for being part of the panel on the U.S. Senate debate. Just in general, if you haven't watched the Atlanta Press Club debate, particularly even on the U.S. Senate side, I think that there's a lot to be gleaned from the way that questions were asked and the substance that was asked. And so I actually got a lot more substantively out of these debates than I did from uh, the debate on Friday night, even though I learned a lot about that in the Senate debate. Um, and and so I think it's worth watching, even though Herschel Walker wasn't at the at the Senate debate. But to go back to the gubernatorial debate, um, you know, I don't know how many minds are going to be changed from this debate. However, it was a lively debate that conveyed a lot of information. So if there were things that you needed to learn, it was really interesting to have uh, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp debate policies present different visions for how to lead the state, um, be hard charging um, against each other. Um, and I mean, even the um, insertion of Shane Hazel, who interrupted a lot um, and um, took positions that, you know, in some instances are classical libertarian, but then also in the way that he presented them, maybe kind of eyebrow raising in some to some degree. So uh, his leverage strategy wasn't clear to me, for instance, when he said he was running for leverage and it was like, OK, but I don't know how that's going to work for you. Um, uh, if you don't win or if you don't negotiate with people after the fact, but it was just overall a really good debate. And, you know, I can't help but compare Abrams to Warnock. And so, you know, I thought that there were some missed opportunities um, on Friday night for, for Warnock to really pounce on policy and to distinguish himself, not just in terms of policy contrast, but also in terms of the grasping of issues. Um, and like that was not there. Stacey Abrams is obviously a much more seasoned debater. Um, and that was an excellent kind of intellectual back and forth between her and Brian Kemp. So, um, you know, on substantive value, I just it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful debate to watch. Um, Donna, I want to be a little careful since you were moderating the debate and ask you a slightly different question, which is um, what what was the atmosphere like in the studio at, with Abrams and Kemp coming in? They fought each other pretty aggressively in this campaign. Uh, were they able to talk to each other, engage with one another when the cameras weren't rolling? Did they stay separate from one another? And then more important, probably, how big of a disruption was Shane Hazel to your attempts to try to keep the debate focused on issues, which for the most part it was. It was a very substantive debate. Yeah. So I, I, um, I can tell you that the atmosphere was pretty cordial. They really didn't. They stayed away from each other coming in. Interestingly enough, all the candidates arrived at the same time, uh, but they came in. They were cordial to each other. They did. There was not a lot of discussion. I think the AJC has a great picture of the um of Abrams and um, Kemp shaking hands with each other. So, you know, they, they kind of stayed to themselves when it came to those kind of things, but they were very friendly with everybody involved, with the, um, with the crew, with the, the, the panelists, with myself, and when they came in and very friendly. So it was, you know, your typical debate in that sense. I think they were surprised that Shane Hazel came out the way he did and, um, and kind of interrupted some of the points that they wanted to make. And that was a bit of a distraction. You could see uh, a little bit of frustration. I think that came across a little bit, especially I think at one point uh, Shane Hazel asked a question, sort of. Uh, he, I had to kind of get him to ask the question. 
of Brian Kemp, and he finally did, and Brian Kemp wasn't sure if it was actually a question. So there, the, um, they, I think there was some frustration over that, but I, I overall understand why the Atlanta Press Club wants everybody there. I think the, um, when you're out in the field, you hear people say, why don't, you, why don't we hear from everybody? Well, the Atlanta Press Club gives everybody a chance. And so Shane Hazel, the Libertarian candidate, was able to come in and kind of, at least for one, in one debate, give everybody a chance to see everybody who's running for the office. And so uh, it, I think his uh, frustration, his frustration at wanting to get things out frustrated everything, everybody else yeah. in the process. But in the end, they did make their points. And, and well, I and, think that was the important part of it. Yeah, I, 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 I thank you for that, because I want to play a couple of sort of extended sound from the, the debate and, and ask you to talk about it. We've already... Uh, you've already mentioned that public safety was talked about. Guns came up in a way that uh, we haven't heard a lot about really from the candidates in the campaign. So let's first listen to an exchange about public safety uh, between uh, uh, Kemp and Stacey Abrams. As many people know, I have over 100 sheriffs endorsing my campaign, uh, several of which are Democrats. And my question for Ms. Abrams tonight is how many Democrat or how many sheriffs statewide have publicly endorsed your campaign? Mr. Kemp, what you are attempting to do is continue the lie that you've told so many times. I think you believe it's the truth. I support law enforcement and did so for 11 years, worked closely with the Sheriff's Association. Unlike you, I don't have the luxury of relying on slogans to describe my position on public safety. I believe that we need safety and justice. And like most Georgians, I lead a complicated life where we need access to help, but we also need to know that we are safe from racial violence. While you may not have had that experience, too many people I know have. Well, I would just tell people that, look, I support safety and justice. But Ms. Abrams refused to answer the question, so I'll let you know that the answer is zero. No sheriffs are endorsing her statewide because of her stances on wanting to defund the police, eliminate cash bail, and serving on the boards of organizations like the Margaret Casey Foundation that supports and gives grants to organizations that are promoting the defund the police movement. Okay, there's a lot to talk about there, but let me just expand a little bit on a couple things that Abrams said. We had to edit the answer just a bit. First of all, she made a very interesting comment uh, I think, Andra, uh, that we didn't include, in which she said that unlike Kemp, she can't rely on the, quote, good old boy network, in this case, sheriffs, uh, to come to, uh, rushing to uh, her defense like he can. That alone, I thought, was a fascinating uh, way to frame this, Andra. Um I mean, there was a lot that was actually really interesting and very nuanced in, in Abrams' response. So, first of all, I think their definitions of justice are different. Um, and so, uh, Brian Kemp was talking about making sure that you get criminals off the street in terms of justice. And Stacey Abrams was talking about equity to make sure that the criminal justice system applies to everybody fairly and that certain people aren't targeted with uh, extra legal police violence. Um, and so like they were having different conversations there. Um, I think the other part of Abel's response that wasn't included, that was also very interesting was when she talked about her own personal story, um, and talked about the fact that, you know, she has a brother in prison, um, and, and how she wants justice for his victims, 
um, for his victims and not like I'm trying to get my brother out of jail. But like, so we accept that verdict. But then also, I'm also trying to make sure that my other brother doesn't get racially profiled. Um, That is an experience. And so the fact that she said that or alluded to the fact that Brian Kemp would probably be less likely to have that happen to him or wouldn't have access to the same types of stories was something that Governor Kemp, I think, overlooked. I think, you know, the other issue that she's trying to address here is an issue that, you know, she has faced, but also other Black candidates in particular have faced in other contests around the country, is this idea that every Black Democrat supports defunding the police. Right. They were willing to have discussions about this in the wake of George Floyd's murder. But most black Democrats do not support defunding the police. Yeah, maybe the folks on the squad do, but everybody else has usually been pretty clear about the fact that they don't. But they do want to have this broader conversation of justice. That's really important. Exactly, Andra. And I think that that. Uh, Stacey Abrams definitely kind of was trying to walk a tightrope, right? This is a, a criticism that you hear from Republicans all the time, that she supports defund the police, which she says, no, not true. So she's kind of trying to, on the one hand, show that, that she isn't, that she still supports law enforcement, um, isn't kind of taking one of those more extreme positions, but at the same time, still doesn't want to turn off progressives, folks who are disenchanted with the way the current system is, black voters who might have had bad experiences with law enforcement. She's trying to kind of walk that line a little bit. Um, and, and perhaps her answer was able to do that. Um, overall, and I, you know, Donna mentioned overall this, this cordial tone that was kind of struck the entire time. And, and that was a really striking part of this debate for me, uh, especially given the history between Kemp and Abrams, even on issues like defund the police, where I think there is a lot of tension and frustration with each other. And that did not come across to me listening to the debate at all. I don't know if it was different in the room, but but that was striking to me. And I think it's the contrast in the Senate race and the governor's race is so fascinating here because what you have in the Senate race to a certain extent is two candidates, one who is brand new to the, to politics and the other, excuse me, Raphael Warnock, who in 2020 didn't really get hit with a lot of attacks because of the nature of how that race went with Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins in a brutal primary. We all lived through it. But so there you have all this personal um, drama, honestly, that comes up that, you know, we journalists have to ask about and um, that they're attacking each other on, whether it's domestic violence allegations or, um, you know, uh, um, eviction attempts by a, this um, housing complex that Raphael Warnock's church is um, an, an owner of. And so in the governor's race, meanwhile, we have candidates who did this in 2018, who have been in our public eye for now, I don't know, four years for sure, more really. And there's not much like personal drama left to churn up in these debates. <laughs> what we have <laughs> is policy differences that they, I mean, they certainly have. And um, and so it just, the contrast between these two races in uh, through the prism of the debates to me was, was really striking. Uh, Donna, before we have to take a break, um, I think it's important to point out that this this continual drumbeat by, by Kemp and his allies that Stacey Abrams supports defunding the police, which she does not, unfortunately for her campaign, and we've pointed this out on the show before, is based on an interview she did on CNN in which an anchor essentially kind of goaded her into uh, saying something about defunding the police. But, but having done that, she went on and explained what she means 
about that, which has more to do with diverting resources that could be used for uh, people uh, for mental health services and other services uh, that are just as important as as policing. But it did give Republicans like Kemp an opening that they've certainly taken advantage of. Right, and I think if you uh, you think back on that, as you point out. She was kind of fed the question, and then she this, she had to respond to it. And and in the way the question was uh, was uh, offered to her, had to basically um, try to make people understand what she actually meant about defund the police. And but that but the way the question comes across makes it really difficult because she has to answer yes or no. And so it's right. had an uphill battle to try to keep that from um, continuing to haunt her in all of this. And I think with last night's debate, she was able to make clear her position on things. All right. We, we got to get to the first break of the show. I want to talk a little bit more about this debate last night because there, there is so much more uh, to talk about in terms of where these candidates stand on the issues. We'll be back after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Donna Lowry, uh, Emma Hurt, Tamar Hallerman, Andre Gillespie join me for today's show. We're talking about the gubernatorial debate last night. Um, I want to turn to one more soundbite that I also thought was a really fascinating exchange. Um, it was really built around the uh, what's been a very important uh, policy dispute throughout this campaign. What should the uh, state do? What should the governor do with the enormous surplus that the state has largely based on COVID relief funds that came in from the federal government, uh, but also increased tax collections in the state itself. And Abrams and Kemp have very different views on this. Let's listen to the exchange uh, as it went down last night. My plan is to use the revenue that we have because we've been open. If Stacey Abrams had been your governor over the last four years, you wouldn't have that excess revenue because she wanted the state to stay locked down and criticize me when I opened it back up. We have, in fact, been using this revenue and will do so in the future to do another income tax refund and put the money back in your pocket. I urged caution because any leader should privilege the lives of those they serve. 38,000 people died in Georgia. We have one county where one in every 100 Hancock County residents perished under this governor. And so, yes, I urged caution. But I also urge good math. We have the money in our accounts to do what is right. Money not delivered by Brian Kemp, money delivered by federal Democrats, and money that is delivered by hardworking Georgians who have generated the surplus, and they deserve investments in their lives. Um, so, tomorrow, among other things, uh, Stacey Abrams believes that money should be used for uh for expanding pre-K. She pointed out in that answer that there's still a waiting list for young children to be able to get into preschool uh, programs in the state. Um, She, of course, wants to expand Medicaid to everyone who is eligible across the state. Uh, And this has been a major uh, dispute between the two of them throughout the campaign. 
Yeah, and I'm glad that was a question that was asked because it's something that I don't think can necessarily be explained in a 30 second ad on television and it, there is kind of a lot of nuance to it. So I'm glad that they were able to kind of show their different visions for how they would use that. Stacey Abrams, I think, was able to effectively deliver a message that many Democrats have struggled with this campaign cycle, talking about how it was Democrats in Congress who passed that COVID relief money and how that has kind of helped lead to this surplus we've seen in Georgia and helped give Governor Kemp a lot of this money he's had to spend on his various priorities over this uh, last couple of years. So um, that was something that a lot of Democrats, for whatever reason, haven't been kind of hitting home in a lot of their their speeches. Um, but the governor, on the other hand, kind of laid out his argument that you've heard throughout this cycle. Um, he's proud of his record when it came to reopening the state after that, that first uh, lockdown in COVID. And so I, I think I'm glad that they had that discussion, and I think hopefully it'll help voters figure out what vision they want for the state. Emma, um, weigh in on this, but let me add this to that, uh, uh, your answer, I hope. Um, We haven't heard a lot. uh, Kemp's had kind of a free ride in talking about the economic advantages of opening the state early. And um, the Abrams campaign, it seems to me, has not said a lot about what she did say last night. 38,000 Georgians died of COVID-19, um, a, a, a huge number of people. And last night was, f- for me at least, one of the few times that I've heard it mentioned by Democrats in this election cycle. Well, I mean, I, I looked this up recently, and I think the, the issue is that if you look at the per capita death rate, we're kind of in the middle. Um, it's a bit of a mix between Democratic and Republican states at the top. And so perhaps that's why the message is a little bit uh, tricky to to levy in that way. But we do have this sort of finger pointing across the, the party line here where you have um, Kemp saying, you know, you, you, there's only surplus for you to um, talk about in your plans because I reopened the state and that's why the economy is strong and we have this surplus. And she's saying, there's only federal money for you to give away for all these things because Democrats won in DC and, and they gave you this money. And um, it is, however, to Tamar's point, uh, like distillation of the different way in which they see um, using the state's budget in a way is how they how they use the surplus, where Abrams is is proposing all these new investments and different plans with some surplus left over still. But Kemp has stayed a little bit loose on it, you know, suspension of the state gas tax tax rebates, property tax rebates, and then working with the General Assembly on the rest. Meanwhile, Abrams has uh, a plan for all of it, pretty much, also including state gas tax suspension, one thing that there is bipartisan agreement on. Andra? Um, You know, this is where you see the contrast, um, you know, in terms of what to do with state money. I mean, even Shane Hazel provided a contrast. I mean, his take was, you know, a little bit more extreme that it was all theft and, and, and that the government shouldn't take money, period, from us. Um, but for those who do recognize that they're public goods um, and that we have to contribute to fund them, um, this is, you know, really interesting. So Brian Kemp is the incumbent, has the levers at his power to be able to, you know, dispense resources to the state. And he's clearly been doing that. Um, and we'll see whether or not that actually accrues to his credit in the course of this election cycle. But Stacey Abrams is making a case for um, investment. Um, and in building infrastructure, both physical and in terms of human capital as well, using this windfall um, that's available. And it's just going to be a question of whether or not voters 
um, you know, agree with Kemp's vision or Abrams' vision more. Um, Donna, one of the things that I thought about, and I'm going to get this confused, and I maybe shouldn't even bring it up. There's this famous experiment where young children are offered uh, maybe they can have one cookie or some other treat immediately, um, or they can hold off and not take that cookie right away, but get three if they wait a certain period of time. That sort of reminds me of the debate, uh, to simplify it, between Kemp and Abrams on this. Kemp says, I'm going to get you your money, your tax refund. I'm going to give you another 350 bucks, $500, whatever. And Abrams is saying, no, 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 we need to invest for the future. It's an interesting debate. Yeah, it's very much a contrast between the two and how they approach all of this. Um, hers is um, very much thought out and looking toward the future and and where we might find ourselves down the road and dealing with the issues that um, she considers important. And and Kemp is more and he's in a position to do it as governor. Let's deal with things right now. These are the give me's that I'm going to pass along right now. The tax rebates, the things that will help you right now with, you know, your gas, your, you know, inflation, all of that thing. And whether or not that's looking long term the way she wants it to is um, not uh, doesn't seem as important as what's going on right now. And that's the way he was with the pandemic. You know, he, he decided to open up because we're going to deal with things right now, not look ahead. Tamar, uh, just to put a finishing touch on this, um, the most recent poll, AJC, GPB, and the Georgia News Collaborative conducted, um, the majority of respondents said they prefer an approach to invest rather than give back money uh, to the uh, to taxpayers. Um, they would like to wait for their three cookies instead of grabbing the one. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, Brian Kemp is a Republican, and a lot of the ethos of that party is, you know, if we have the surplus, let's try and get some of that back in the pockets of of voters. So he's kind of balanced it, right? He, he's been able to spend a lot of that COVID money that's come from Congress, you know, so he's been able to to show different constituencies, you know, I'm looking out for you, I'm taking care of you, but he's also had enough money. He's been able to return a lot of that money uh, to, to folks. So he's been able to kind of have his uh, have his cookies, you save some for later, eat some now. Um, and that's the luck of the draw in the times. He's, he's been able to enjoy a, a relatively strong economy and lots of money coming in. All right, before we get to the break, Andra, just one last point here. Uh, Reed Epstein and Maya King for the New York Times. Maya King, as most of you out there know, has uh, become a panelist on Political Rewind. Uh, they wrote this story about the debate for the Times, and, and they made a really interesting opening statement, essentially. The debate was a substantive hour that allowed Mr. Kemp and Ms. Abrams to demonstrate the stark differences between them. And here's the key. Few undecided voters who watched would be confused about how either would seek to govern. And I don't think you can ask more from a debate than that. But, Andre, you said it at the very beginning. Does this debate make a difference? Um, this race, you know, it, you know, could be decided by a reasonably narrow margin. So I expect that it's going to be within five points. So I think it's a question of how many voters are still undecided. Um, truly about where they're going to stand. If you were truly undecided and you were genuinely seeking information, you got information. How, whether or not that actually helps 
you know, make your choice or not, you know, I think remains to be seen. I think for the vast majority of people who are turning in, who are tuning in, they've made up their minds already. And so I don't think there was anything that you would have learned from that that would have dissuaded you from voting, just given the nature of our polarization. All right. Um, we got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more. Um, I want to look at uh, Herschel Walker and his appearance on Sean Hannity's entertainment show on Fox TV last night. We'll be right back. Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, we've already uh, mentioned that you were a panelist on the Sunday night Atlanta Press Club debate that was a U.S. Senate debate. Uh, It was the debate that Herschel Walker's team from the very beginning said they wouldn't participate in. And so we had Chase Oliver, the libertarian, facing off against Raphael Warnock. And and, um, I I, want to ask you, I know you were on the panel, so I want to be a little careful about how I ask you this, but... It, it struck me, and I think Andra already said it, that Raphael Warnock actually was able, without uh, uh, Herschel Walker there, to make a stronger case for why he should be reelected and also was able to go after uh, uh, Walker in a way that didn't quite come across in the Friday night debate between them. And I, I wondered if it felt like that to you in the studio. Well, it's it's easier to, to hammer someone if they're not there <laughs> to protest, right? But, I mean, yes, I do think that it felt like on um, some of the questions that Warnock appeared to maybe dodge on Friday, he came ready with a bit more on, um, on Sunday. And, again, there was – Walker also on Friday did a very good job of kind of aggressively stepping in and talking over Warnock at times in a bit of the Trumpian vein that um, that some people take with debates. And and so without that, Warnock's case was made clearer. But um, it it was, um, I did feel like I, I listened to the debate looking for places where we needed a follow-up question. And when I asked them, like on the, you know, the evictions or about, you know, his own accusations of violence by his ex-wife or um, running over her foot by, with her car, excuse me, um, he came ready. He had another answer ready to go. Um, so I would suggest that in a debate, in, in a debate setting, all of the points that Raphael Warnock might have hoped to score Friday night, unfortunately, he made them on Sunday, but Walker wasn't there. And, and there may not have been much of an audience uh, uh, to watch that, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, Tamar, I'm having a little bit of trouble with this eviction story that now the Walker campaign has really made a big part of their um, uh, uh, race against Raphael Warnock, claiming that uh, 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 Ebenezer Baptist Church owned an apartment complex that uh, had low income or homeless people living there, that they evicted a number of people. This story seems to be a little shaky, and I'm looking for a fact check on it, but apparently no one was ever evicted from this place, and the corporation, the foundation that ran it, is separate from Ebenezer Baptist Church. I, give me what you understand about this. I can't speak to that story at all. I, I haven't looked into it at all. Uh, but taking a step back, I can say that, that 
obviously the Herschel Walker campaign is looking for any opportunity to be able to go on offense against Senator Warnock. They have been on the defensive for the last a couple of weeks, given the steady drumbeat of revelations about Herschel Walker's personal life. So any opportunity that you can take to, to hit the, the senator, they are going to take. And I think it's a, it's a real opening for him to at least try, at least take the spotlight and the conversation off of his personal life and help rally Republicans behind him. Yeah, I, I apologize. I probably should have addressed that to you, Emma, since you're the one who asked the question on Sunday night. Yeah, I mean, I think my understanding is that um, there is this low-income housing complex that a foundation affiliated with Ebenezer is an owner of but doesn't manage. And that was Warnock's mm-hmm. answer is that we had nothing to do with it and nobody was evicted at the end of the day is his defense. The Walker campaign, of course, is attacking him for, you know, saying things like people should not be evicted during the pandemic. But, um, but meanwhile, this foundation, this uh, housing complex was attempting to evict people. It, it is, as Tamar said, at the, at the bottom line, it is an attempt by the Walker campaign to really go on the offense, um, step forward as they've been on the back foot on defense for a couple weeks now and, and looking for any, any way to, to throw, um, to throw cast out on, on Warnock. Well, all right. So, uh, Donna, while Walker did not show up for the Sunday night debate here in Georgia uh, at, at GPB, uh, he did appear last night on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News. Uh, Hannity came down to the state. They held a town meeting. I think it was about 250 people in the audience. Walker was there. Uh, I want to start, though, Donna, since both you and Emma have been involved in these debates, um, he started Hannity with an opening statement in which he said he called. Here's what he said about the debate, uh, talking about how Democrats are, make, are making a desperate attempt to defeat, smear and slander, slander Herschel Walker. That's Hannity. Last night, he said, they attempted to ambush Herschel Walker at a fake debate that was organized by a group of individuals who, quote, donated thousands of dollars to Democrats, including George, uh, Joe Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then Walker came out to the applause of the entire crowd, Donna. Yeah, so I, I don't know how you can ambush somebody who doesn't show up. Um, if that's what he was talking about, <laughs> if, he's, if he's talking about the uh, Atlanta Press Club debate, it was an empty podium. That's not an ambush. It, he was invited. He had been invited for months. It was clear that Warnock had said early on that that was the debate. He was one of the debates that he wanted to be a part of, and he said no to it. So it was a, a real big spin on saying that he, he was ambushed in all of this. And I guess it's um, what we might expect from where this came from and, and, and Sean Hannity um, when it comes to trying to um, – at, at all costs, make the, the uh, candidate look good uh, in the midst of um, what, what clearly had nothing to do with anybody coming after him at a debate that where he did not show up and it was just a podium there for him. So. Andra? And I think the other thing that I would add to this is that the debate format at the Atlanta Press Club allows candidates to ask questions of each other. So Raphael Warnock, um, and, and Shane Oliver uh, and Chase Oliver would have asked him questions, and he would have had the opportunity to ask questions 
of his opponents as well, so that there would have been a give and take there. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, that it's a missed opportunity. I totally understand Walker's team strategy of putting him in front of friendly audiences um, who can ask softball questions. But at the end of the day, what I want to know from Herschel Walker is what is his, not just what his worldview is, but what is his understanding of the policies that are at stake? Um, when he talks about Medicaid expansion, not just in terms of sort of providing health care to all people, but the idea of that's what poor people get. So it's not good. And I want um, you know, and I, and I want to have the, the health care that Senator Warnock has. I'm like, well, that's universal health care. Right. And, and, and I wish that the questioners had had kind of pushed him and challenged him on that. But instead, I get to say it here. Charles Blow said it yesterday in, in, in The New York Times when he's, you know, making comments. He actually did this on Killer Mike when he was asking comments, um, you know, about. Uh, the name, image, and likeness provisions that allow student athletes to get paid, he goes off on a tangent about, like, this is taking scholarship money away from students. I'm like, that's not what NILs are. So if there's anything you should know something about, I would expect as a former college athlete, you would be well-versed in this. And so that's the kind of slippage in knowledge that, uh, that, 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 that would, you know, give some people concern. And I think voters need to know that before they make their decisions. Yeah. Emma? The last thing I'll just say is at the end of all of this debate about debates that we've uh, endured for a couple months now, it ended up um, to, to both campaigns accruing to their, you know, they, they found a way to co-opt it into their strategy, right? Warnock got the shot with the empty podium and he had an opportunity to say a lot of things without a rebuttal from Walker. And Walker has the ability to, to say what he said on Hannity about the liberal media. And at the same time, he did have a debate performance on Friday that, that many Republicans we're happy with. Um, the last thing I'll say about the criticism of the Atlanta Press Club debate is everyone else from Marjorie Taylor Greene to Brian Kemp did agree to show up and have showed up many times. And so I, I hope that the institution has proven itself to be a fair, um, a fair venue for candidates to make their case. All right. We're almost out of time, but I, I don't ever want to miss an opportunity with you, Tamar, to see if you can give us any kind of brief update about what's happening with Fonnie Willis and the grand jury investigation. Obviously, it's been out of the news uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, is there anything going on right now that we should be aware of? Right now, we're in the middle of a month-long pause for uh, ahead of the election, so we're not expecting any major folks to, to get subpoenaed or to come in to testify. But the grand jury is working behind the scenes to kind of review materials they might have gotten from subpoenas, that sort of thing, subpoenas for evidence. Um, we also could see an answer in the weeks ahead about Lindsey Graham's challenge of his subpoena from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. We expect him to appeal to the Supreme Court if he loses. And next week in Greenville, we'll also get a hearing on Mark Meadows and uh, whether he'll have to appear in Georgia on his subpoena. So a few things going on here and there in this quiet period. <laughs> All right. Tamara Hallerman, thank you for that. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, Tamara Hallerman. Uh, glad to have you, Emma Hurt, Donna Lowry, and of course, Andrew Gillespie. Thank you all for a really smart conversation on the show today. Just one last note. Um, you noticed we did not go to pledge breaks, even though we're in the middle of a pledge period here, uh, because we wanted to give you as much information as possible about what's going on in the election right now. So if you can help us, just go to gpb.org, click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, any contributions you can make will be very, very welcome. Thank you all for listening to the show today. My thanks to our team, uh, Chase McGee, 
Natalie Mendenhall. Um, we appreciate the work you do as our producers, and uh, same to Jake Cook and uh, Victoria Evans-Cash. We'll see you all tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy.